Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds Warren. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. Uh, we have a lot to unpack today, even after yesterday. Um, so I'm joined today first by my colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm tired. The last 24 <laughs> hours have been a lot. Been a lot. It has been a lot, a lot. Yeah, I'm on deadline. I was on deadline for something yesterday, and then, of course, everything pops up. Um, so exciting times, but we're getting through it. And then we we're also joined from by by Dave Searle, the indie pod father himself. Dave, how are you doing today, man? <laughs> you got to start off with the, with the pod father. Um, yeah. It's ironic because I'm actually energized by the fact that not being the pod father and not the pod person right now mm-hmm. means that I have had the distinct privilege of not having to think very hard about the Indiana Pacers up until this point in the season. And I remember what it was like when, you know, the Paul George injury season, watching every game multiple times, doing two podcasts a week. It was brutal to be able to do something like that. And so I understand I have had, I've been, I've been sitting on uh, uh, the beach reading a book instead of, you know, watching the, the Pacers uh, kind of do whatever they've been doing for the last few weeks for the most part. So um, it's actually energizing to me and I'm probably more like the common fan in that way where it's like, eh, geez. And then now this news kind of comes out and that reinvigorates uh, uh, things a little bit. So um, it's been a lot of news, but it's actually been the first time in a while that I've been kind of like, a good like enjoying thinking about the indiana pacers so i mean obviously all that rebuilding opens up a lot of hope so that's kind of where i'm at i'm I'm sort of in the opposite end of the spectrum where it's actually fun to think about it now but probably as a consequence of the fact that i haven't been thinking about it all that much in the the last few weeks yeah i kind of like that you verbalized it that way because before mark and i got on like that's exactly what i just told him and like obviously i don't know who leaked this report or where exactly all the sourcing was coming from i totally believe all of it and that it's accurate given that it's coming from sean sharani and bob kravitz but that was what i told mark i go a lot of this comes across as you know for a, a fan base that has been very apathetic this season that it's like hey look we're putting it out there we're we're doing something we're not just sitting here you know, so it, it just and because of some of the stuff that came out in the reporting of how this came out to the players, like that's kind of how it comes across to me. But mm-hmm. I guess my personal preference is I like it better when they move in silence. And then I'm just like, hey, I get to go write about whoever they traded for, because now this kind of feels like it's it because I think they're going to be patient with it. I don't see them making like, you know, a quick move. They don't have to make a move to make one. You get the best deal available for what you're going to be doing <laughs> and moving forward with. So. I could see this being very awkward as I continue to watch these games for a while. Cause it just feels like a very weird place. So. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Cause I had actually reached out to Mark to do a podcast this week to talk about what Kevin Pritchard has done so far, where they're at and what they might do in the future. It shows the right and, way. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, but, but there's a reason why is I've had so many people, especially people who are kind of outside of Pacers fan number of Pacers coverage people who maybe focus on other teams or maybe national media coverage. I've had somebody cover conversations with them that say Pacers are on the treadmill of mediocrity. They're not going anywhere. They built the team to be, what are they even doing? And so it's like, well, you got to understand it isn't just like that. They just signed this team and this is where they are. And they did this on purpose. I mean, it's like there was more that went into going into the spot. And I feel like so many times either outside media or fans sometimes out of frustration. I mean, fans are fans. Um, they, they would talk about the team and they'd say they're not making any moves. They seem to be content with what they have. And I don't think that that's true at all. I mean, we've seen them try to trade for Gordon Hayward, poke around about Ben Simmons. It, see, it seemed very obvious to me that they keep looking for the move to make to take this roster either in a different direction or to the next level. I kind of wonder if the Pacers franchise had been feeling frustrated about the fact that they've been in that mode and no one seems to know. And people seem to have this, it's become kind of popular conception that they're like, we're going for the eight seed. We intentionally built a team around Domas Sabotis. That's the Pacers MO. And that's not it at all. I mean, this, this team was designed to be the supporting cast for Victor Oladipo. I mean, all this got locked in when he was at an All-NBA level. And so, um, I mean, that was the plan. And so, the, obviously, the knee 
uh, blew all of that up, uh, both literally and figuratively, I suppose. Um, and, and it's been a little bit of a bummer, but, you know, they made, I think, a pretty defensible move in saying, we have this all-star, uh, all-NBA caliber guy. Let's hope that he can carry us as far as we can, and let's load up on a really awesome roster around him and the um, and lock it in long-term at wonderful deals um, and so that we can run this for, you know, four years or so. It's a smart plan until the guy goes out, you know. So um, I, I, that's all of that. I think that it seems clear that, you know, they didn't intentionally want to be where they're at right now. Um, and so I, I wonder if part of the finally releasing of it is just a, a flag to say, we know we, we're, we're trying, we've been trying, we are trying just to make that really formal and clear. And I think that in that kind of announcement, so to speak, um, the word rebuild, I think, was the first time that we've seen that attached to any sort of conversation about the Pacers in the front office. I think that was sort of the major thing. But I, I'll let you speak about it a little bit more, Kately, but like the timing of it. Uh, especially with the players. Um, that's where the mystery comes in a little bit. Um, why was it just now? Was it a scoop? Did somebody try to get some information out there quicker than they wanted to? I don't know the etymology of that, but i um, not super pleased to hear about that. I kind of expected to hear reports from practice that they had a good conversation and you know they're going to be professionals, but that doesn't seem to be what happened at all. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to misrepresent it. I don't know what their actual opinions were, but it sounded from what Scott Agnes has in his report, which everybody, I encourage them to go read. He's good at what he does. That, you know, it was somewhat of a surprise and that Brogdon and Levert and Turner and Sabonis were being pulled back to a room and had a conversation with Rick Carlisle where they were kind of told like, hey, we're still trying to win games, but there's a chance that a trade could happen. And And then, you know, I think Miles was seen like scrolling through his phone a bunch and then relocating to the other side of the floor. So for me, like if this was a conversation you were having with Herb Simon and we know from the past that the Pacers have said publicly, like we want to, you know, let people know that this type of stuff could be happening, that if you had had a conversation, because like you're saying, it came out with the word rebuild, that that's the direction you might want to go, that it seems like that type of a conversation could have been happening before the middle of practice where then people were observed you know, yeah. and, and what their reactions were. Like, I, I don't see that as completely ideal. And I kind of wonder what the situation is going to be like in the interim with these games. And, you know, maybe in the long term, depending upon what moves you make, it's just a, a bump in the road and you move on. But I don't necessarily see it as great, given what they've said that their stated goal was in these types of situations. Do you think that it is at all possible that, conversations that they've had evolving over the last several years. We know they've talked to Charlotte about Turner and, you know, the Pelicans about Turner and, you know, all the different oh, things that we've heard. Do you think it's possible that that started to inch a little bit closer to reality? And so they had to kind of get it out there in order to sort of, does that make sense that, that maybe some things were moving a little bit quicker than they thought? Uh, I think that maybe not might be unlikely, but I'm wondering if that is maybe part of it, trying to get it out there, so that they could sort of claim that they told people in advance before it happened. Um, I don't, that might seem a little bit too tinfoil. How do you? Yeah. I mean, I, I have no idea. Oh, I don't go think ahead, it's tinfoil. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I don't think it's tinfoil, but like, like, especially re- like, I think in reading the athletic article yesterday, um, I could have bought that, but now going through and reading Scott's piece about what it was like at practice yesterday, it, I mean, Kayla and I were talking about this a little bit before we got on. It just seems like they're trying to cover their asses in some ways. In, in the way that they approach talking to the guys based on what's reported. Um, obviously, we weren't there. We're not entirely sure of everything that happens in the background, but that's how it comes off. And um, it's frustrating. Like, I, uh, my immediate thought yesterday, um, well, I, had, I had multiple. I mean, my immediate takeaway was I kind of understand this, um, especially after reading through it. It's more of a retool than a rebuild, and we can talk about that in a minute. But, um, you know, I, I understood to a degree of being like, okay, we, we have messed up, like we're going to try and fix it. But then in going through and being like, it just, I don't know, it comes off very awkwardly. Like the timing and everything comes off extremely awkwardly considering the moves they made. Um, and I don't want to be unfair to to anyone, like, or to, especially to Chris Duarte. Like one of the points that gets brought up is like, oh, well, you know, get Chris Duarte more playing time. Like, well, he's already playing like 25, 30 minutes per game. I don't know quite what you mean with that. Like, and then it gets weird too, because a big reason, and I, I'm not saying that they would draft differently if things had been different, but 
part of the reason that was talked about and Carlisle had mentioned that they were high on drafting Chris Duarte was because they thought he could come in and play right away and compete right away. So if you are coming in with the mindset of that's what you're going to do this year, does that change if if you actually have your shit together 25 games before in the offseason? I don't know. Like there's just a lot of stuff there that makes it murky and it feels odd. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I have one thing that does seem to make sense to me about why this sort of order of operations happened the way it does. Um, again, a, a point I like to make a lot when people talk about the Pacers roster being maybe stuck in the mud a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's always ironic when somebody says they don't realize they're on the NBA treadmill of mediocrity when Kevin Pritchard invented the term, the NBA treadmill of mediocrity. He's very acutely aware of, of the fact of how that can happen and is uh, given uh, talks about how t- NBA teams shouldn't do this. In the athletic report that we saw, we saw some confirmation that after, you know, when Paul George was going to leave, that he wanted to do like a real rebuild. Um, And he has, um, you know, in press conferences and such, put little hints out there, like if somebody avalanches us that, you know, we could go in the direction of a rebuild. Um, I've always wondered if that was kind of like a, just so you know, you know, if you really want to do it, I want to do it too. So, you know, give me the best offer and I get the sign off from, from ownership. But Anyway, the the point is, I think that the one thing that might have happened that makes all this make sense is that ownership finally decided you have permission to do something closer to a rebuild, and then either um, either directly or people associated with that conversation got it to Bob Kravitz, and so then Kevin Pritchard gets the news that day. Okay, you you have permission to do something closer to a rebuild like you've been pushing for. Bob gets um, wind of that, pushes it out, and they haven't even had the chance to sit down, even Rick Carlisle or the players, to have that conversation, and then practice happens right after that. That's the only thing that I could see is that you know they make that decision, and someone in the room puts that out to the athletic. Um, that would be the thing that would make all of that make sense, but who knows? Because it does really seem that very clearly ownership has just – swatted that down every single time that conversation comes up and it might have been that literally yesterday morning they finally decided to uh to let that go um but that would make sense to me sure i mean it seems like some of it's being framed too that you know they realize that it's stale and they want to get ahead of the story and i'm like okay but orlando can kind of make that claim last year too that they abruptly veered toward a rebuild that's not how they started the season and i wasn't reading a bunch of stories about how vucevic was available like, yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody really thought that. And then they got the deal that they got. Like, I don't know that I necessarily buy into the idea that, oh, we need to put the league on notice that we're doing this via, you know, the media in some sort of way, unless you're trying to send another message, which, like I said, it, it lets the fans know that, hey, we're not just sitting here resting on our laurels. We, we know that we need to make changes. We know we have a direction. Everybody's saying we don't have one because otherwise, like, you know, how did the Orlando Magic accomplish that trade? Clearly, you can call people up and be like, hey, this guy actually is available. What what would you be willing to offer and still do it without this being out there for, you know, weeks on end? Yeah, I, I, that would that does definitely make me gravitate towards the idea that at some level, the athletic and Kravitz got a hold of this before that the Pacers wanted to get it out. And I think it's also maybe possible that they were going to just send a signal to every team to a certain degree or in that sense and not necessarily that they wanted a big media push. It it seems like, you know, the Occam's razor on this is that they didn't want that out yesterday, but I could be wrong. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. I think what where it gets interesting, too, is looking at – the way things were framed initially in the headlines made it seem like, okay, the Pacers are going all in on a rebuild. It mentioned Miles, Karras, and Domas by name immediately. Um, but then in going in and doing further reading, it's like, okay, this is more about – like it mentions they want to be competitive again in a year or two. Like it's not like they they, they don't want to – I think the exact quote was they don't want to do a, a, a quote-unquote process or tankathon. Like they, they want to – they, they want to keep winning. And, and as was mentioned in an Indy star report as well, um, like they, they, they want to keep winning. It, it has nothing to do with in terms of being, you know, getting a high draft pick or anything like that. Um, which is what makes me, I don't want to say hesitate, but one of the things that, I mean, that, that, that has been uh, frustrating to a degree with Twitter is the automatic, like, you know, well, this guy needs to get traded. This guy needs to get traded and like this and this and this. And um, I, I understand to a degree uh, trading miles and Karis. Um, and I don't want to say, I don't understand trading Domas. Like I, I, that's some, that's what I want to talk about. Um, 
I do think like you have to operate with the sense of, you know, we have to take look at every option on the table and you never know what's going to happen until you, you, you look at, at each offer and turn every stone over. But I also do just hesitate with the idea of, okay, this guy is 25 years old. He is paid quite charitably is, has, has been the best player on the team. Um, I don't understand necessarily the idea of let's retool and be ready to win in a year or two and trade away our best player with probably not getting somebody back who's going to be as good as him. Like, I mean, of course, that's up for debate, you know, but just generally on trend when we see that happen, like we're not going to see like a one for one deal happen where um, the Pacers get back a better player than Domas. So I guess that was my biggest holdback yesterday. Um I don't know. Did, did, did you guys kind of feel similar sentiments or where were you at with that? Well, I think that the Pacers are in kind of a unique position here. Um, and, you know, this certainly not going to turn the podcast into a relitigation of, of the process, so to speak. But there's a lot of elements of the philosophies that Philadelphia took to rebuilding. One of them that I thought was pretty good was that if they're in that position, that was roughly where the Pacers are at. If players are still youngish and they're still under control, um, being uh, via contract over several years at reasonable deals, that's like the best time to trade them. Like everybody always likes wants to hang on forever and then finally trade a guy in the last season of the deal. And it's been known that he wants to go play in L.A. or whatever. And then it makes it really hard to trade someone like that. This is actually like if you're going to trade somebody, this is the time to do it. If you wait until the contract's about to expire or you wait till a little bit too old, you're going to get a lot less for it. And I think that it sort of makes sense to say, you know, the Pacers have a lot of guys that are kind of mid-20-ish. Um, and they are all on good contracts. Take half of them, go a little bit back into the pot to drive to get more of a lottery ticket kind of situation, a guy with a higher upside, and then let that mature over the next couple of years and then have them all come together. I, um, I think that that makes a lot of sense, and, and especially right now with where they're at in the standings, if they can do it now, strip the team a little bit, and then you know get like a top 10 pick, then that makes a lot of sense for kind of like an instant rebuild. Um, uh, and that's where I think it comes into play. Trade one of these guys. I mean, it's, this is it. I mean, the team's locked in. They have no cap room. They're all young. They're all under control. No, there's no, going to be no difference. And in in, you're just going to add late lottery picks or, you know, picks in the twenties. And then that's it for the next few years. So that's where it makes sense. And so then it's just all about return. Of course, like, if the, the, the Pacers have seen through for a very long time wanting to trade Miles Turner, I feel like if there was a great deal out there, it would have already happened. And I think what they're finding is that people just, don't, for whatever reason, don't. And we can, you know, talk about that, but I feel like that's its own pod. But it just doesn't feel like the here's a great pick plus a young guy for Miles Turner trade is going to happen. Um, and if it would, it would have already happened, I think. And so then the question is, I think they might just see. We have to keep one. We can build a team around either. And people ask us about Sabonis, and the offer's a lot higher. And I think that maybe that's just kind of what they're talking about and why that ends up being the case. Um, so it's not necessarily about Domus has to go or like Domus is like a secondary player to Miles. I don't think it's anything like that. It's just like if you're going to take, make a trade like this and get the most assets that you can then you got to bring a valuable asset to the table. And then maybe just because of situation contract, other teams needs and what they've been offering, Domus might just be that guy. Sure. And I mean, I understand that the entire idea of being proactive and controlling the process yourself before, you know, you make minor moves and it's like, Oh, you know, this didn't, this, this level or layer didn't exactly work either. And now we need to sell off this other guy. And now, like you're saying, you're further into the person's contract and maybe that lessens your return to an extent, like that makes sense. And if you're actually doing like, you know, the regular rebuild, I think that that's what you do. You just make calls and it's all about asset evaluation. It's whether what you're going to get back for miles versus what you're going to get back for Sabonis or what you're going to get back for both of them even. And you take what you get. But at the same time, I'm a little bit on Mark's side in that Sabonis still has this year plus two more on his contract. Like he's not going to be entering a contract year next year. I think pretty definitively he is the team's best player. And I don't know that I think at the number that he has that you're going to be getting somebody that's going to be capable of getting like a 16, 25 and 10. And because I think in the times when they have used him more like he needs to be used, like, and I'm not going to say you change your approach based on one game, but what we saw against the wizards 
what he's capable of being for a team and how that can impact winning. I think I, if, if it were me, I would look at it. If I was going to retool on the fly, I'm not doing the full rebuild approach, which is kind of what it sounds like they want to do. I would be looking at it as, you know, let's keep our three best players, move these other pieces and see what we have because we still have a whole nother year. If it doesn't look good, then you can still do the same thing with Sabonis next year. Cause it, it just doesn't really feel to me that they've ever, you know, what you said earlier, this team wasn't built around Sabonis. It was built around Victor Oladipo. So I don't, I don't even think we've fully seen that. And Mark and I have talked about this on prior pods before. And I, I mentioned it even to Jared, your friend from formerly at eight points, nine seconds. And that uh, friend, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That like, I've never even like, and, and I think it's in part because they wanted to, you know, have this, you know, like Detroit Pistons-esque, like no superstars. And I agree with them. You don't have any superstars, but I've never really heard the team acknowledge that they think that he's their best player. And a lot of times, some of the stuff that they talk about, like, you know, we don't have any stars. We, we have a small margin of error. I just wonder how that comes off when you're sitting there listening to it, no matter who you are of those players. Like, I think it downplays what they are to an extent. And I just, I just wonder what that creates for them, but. That's a, that's a good point. And you know, it's uh Pritchard's, Strategy has been stated that we're going to collect as many like 20 million ish guys that we can and hope one of them busts out and like in a big way. And so that is actually a good point. If, if Domus is like, oh, I'm that guy. And they're like, no, you're not. <laughs> I wonder if that has any sort of uh, uh, impact on it. Uh, that, that is a good point. Uh, but I still think that um, it's I, I think they've made an assessment that the last guy that could do that was Karis Levert. And this was the season to see if he was going to be the one. And he's had a back injury and, you know, all this sort of jazz. But, like, I kind of feel like part of it might be that was the last dude that had a chance to be, like, all-NBA, a perennial kind of guy if we got lucky. And then I think they may have had an assessment that it's not going to happen. Um, I wonder if that's part of their thinking as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's stuff that's going to be interesting to see how, how reporting continues to shift. What I'm most curious to see, I mean, I where I come, especially with Caitlin on this, that that I find frustrating is like, well, what the hell does this mean until they get traded? Like, because I'm not yeah. excited at all for that. Like the next however many weeks of basketball with these guys having new media availability and knowing like, yeah, we're probably going to get traded or at least we're on the trade market right now. And like, what are we even building towards? We're 10 and 16 right now. I'm not going to be here next year. I'm not very excited about that, um, and I'm yeah. most curious to hear what, what Malcolm Brogdon has to say because he's going to be here no matter what. Um, and I, I'm interested to see what that means next year because he's – obviously, he just he just signed the extension. He's not tradable this year. He is the veteran guy on the team, especially if – I mean, I imagine Justin Holiday's name will come up in trades considering he's, he's pretty movable. A yep. lot of teams would look to trade for him. Um, if anybody on the roster is, is touchable um, – then yeah, I'm I'm really curious to see what Malcolm has to say because he didn't come to Indiana to to be part of a retooling team. Yeah. So I I don't know. Yeah. Um, and saying I mean not even just him. Like I I am very curious to see what Miles Domas and and Karis have to say. And it I, I don't know. Um, that's something I'm not very excited about for the next uh, next couple of weeks for sure. Yeah, we it's it's we don't know enough about the inner thinking the think are they bought into this Pacers team? Are they like a, a, a brotherhood of Indiana guys that are going to try to fight through this for several years? Or is there also an internal feeling that we're all good and we're playing the best basketball that we can, but like they, maybe they also see themselves as a team that doesn't have the juice to get all the way up to the top. I, I have no idea if there's any sort of feeling of that in, in inside of the Pacers locker room. Yeah. I will say that, you know, I've seen teams that have really kind of gelled and clicked and have been, you know, uh, seem really connected. Um, it doesn't feel like the Pacers are that team right now. Um and I'm not saying that, you know, they've been lazy bums that don't care about basketball, but I mean, I'm, it's it's less about being a lack of effort than there is the fact that there's a higher level effort when everyone's bought in and you have something special going on. Is it fair to say that that's, that isn't the case so far with the Pacers? Oh, yeah, I think so 100%. I yeah. mean, Caitlin and I talked about this the other day. Like, yeah. I mean, that 17-18 team was arguably less talented than this team. And I, I mean, I think it's different because yeah. you had Vic playing at the level that he played at, but still, yeah. like... Like Caitlin pointed out in her article, like you have the teams up 30 and Victor's running back in transition to to go contest something at the rim. Like it's yeah. not it's not 
the same stuff we're seeing. And again, like you mentioned, it's not necessarily an effort thing. It's just, and I think to, to put it on the front office a little bit, like this is where like Caitlin's talking about with, you know, consistently not being willing to put one player above everyone else. Like when you keep using the, we want to be a tough out rhetoric. Like I think in some ways that does play through with this team, like, and you get to a point when you are 10 and 16, it's like, what this, what's the point of fighting to be a, a team that loses in five games in the first round? Like, I do think maybe there is some kind of, uh, I don't want to say apathy with that. Cause I would sure as I'll be apathetic as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, it's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, like uh, I, I hear you hesitate to say the word apathy, and I think that that hesitation is warranted because you know, guy gets off a long shift at work and he's tired and things aren't going the right way, and then the Pacers miss a rebound and they take it out on him. I mean, that kind of yeah. happens. I'd rather him do that and take it out on his kid, but you know, take it out on the team. So, but it's like apathetic seems like a harsh word, but like you know, it takes an intense level of concentration and effort to reach higher levels in the NBA. And, you know, it's, uh, I wouldn't blame them if they hit a brick wall of this and they look at all the things that we're looking at and saying, where's the, you know, you talk about the the team maybe with Oladipo was maybe a little bit less talented, but like there was magic in the air with that team and they could feel it. You could see like Oladipo is coming out and playing, hitting big shots and like getting it done in crunch time. And then everybody's kind of gelling and, you know, like, like Magellan, I guess. Um, <laughs> can't believe I made that reference. I'm getting too old. Wow. Yeah, wow. Wild, I deserve that. Wow. But, you know, there's a different atmosphere to that. And I wonder if it's look like point differential, whatever. We can't get it done in close games where you've only won 10 games. And looking around, who's that dude that's going to be uh, getting it done in, in those situations? And I think that they might also just be thinking he's not there. Um, and I think it's possible that they could reach a level where they think, okay, I understand that we need a guy like that. And it's not possible that someone's going to be traded, but something's got to give. But again, go all the way back to they've done very loud profiles in public about how they're so transparent with players, how they tell everybody everything that's going on. Everybody has a voice. If there's any sort of chatter about this, then they're going to hear about it first. And so it's worrying to me the fact that they seem to have no idea that this is going to happen. Um, And that's a bummer. Well, I mean, I, don't, I certainly don't want to put words in his mouth, but I mean, even after the game the other night, if you watched all of the media availability, I mean, Miles Turner said, like, we can't be a team or an organization that accepts mediocrity. Like, we're playing like a mediocre team and we can't be a team or organization that accepts it. Like, that, that's showing me at least a little bit of frustration with the current yeah. state that they're in. I think that you can see frustration boiling over on the court. Mark and I talked about that. And that doesn't just extend to, you know, just Karras and Sabonis in that moment. Um, both of them were right and wrong in that situation based on what the coverage was supposed to be, which I won't go into detail again, based off the last pod, but that stuff was happening last year too, even in games that Sabonis didn't play in. Like I have lots of clips where guys were really going at each other, where it kind of feels like the last two seasons have been very heavy for this team. I mean, they go through the entire Bjorkren situation. You don't know what all that was like behind the scenes. I, I know things that people have told me that lead me to think that was a lot. Then you go into this season and it's like before it even starts, you're, you know, you're off to a bad start because, you know, TJ Warren can't come back, which two miles is on admission, which you also brought up on the last pod. He said, we thought he was going to be ready to start the season and he had a setback. So, you know, that means the players thought that was going to happen. You obviously didn't know Karis LeVert was going to have the back injury. We have had other little nagging things going on. And like you said, there's a difference to me when it's the 17, 18 team and it's like, oh yeah. Remember those last three times when we got down big, but we clawed out of the hole. There's a belief that you can continue to keep doing that again versus you're at the end of games and like stuff keeps going wrong and Oh no, it's happening again. And Oh no, it's happening again. Like I do think there's a certain psychology to that, but I will also say, which people know from my articles, I, I, I don't think they're playing the best basketball they can play effort aside. I don't think schematically stuff that's going on makes sense. Just like I didn't think schematically stuff that was going on last year makes sense, but I'm also not going to say that like, Oh, well, if they made this, these changes, this team would be, you know, getting out of the first round of the playoffs. Like, I don't know that I necessarily feel that either. So I understand that the current position that they're in, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that all of that builds and you can see it playing out on the court. You know, it makes it really tantalizing than the fact that, you know, you, you throw out all the, the, the book of stats of where they're at with point differential, what their Pythagorean expectation is and all that sort of jazz um, that you make those few adjustments and maybe you get to a better place. But it is kind of a still maybe the fact that it has been so rough so far has set in the reality that, OK, be it as it may, 
all that sort of stuff. We're still just kind of maybe first round fodder. Um, and um, yeah, I, I understand that that could obviously be frustrating. And um, I, I do think it's a little bit interesting that there's some perception that the Pacers have been clinging to this team for so long and they're finally making a move here. I think that naturally they got so good so fast after Paul George left um, that it's got kind of a false perception of the timeline of this team. But, you know, as you've been saying, everybody's under contract for the most part. I mean, other than TJ Warren, um, they've got a trade asset for any kind of situation for any kind of team. So if there's anybody that wants to get better, uh, whether it's somebody, a core member of their team, uh, uh, just, you know, a, a wing to go into the rotation, guys that are expiring, I mean, any kind of situation, they have a lot of trade assets for that. And I think that um, I am encouraged by the fact that if they're going to do something like this, naturally i think most teams would wait one more year to do something like this and maybe even lock tj warren in for for a longer term deal and then try to do something like this um i do think that overall they're going to get better results by the fact that they're doing this now rather than waiting until next year Um, from a timing perspective i think that this is because of all the injuries and all the blah 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 coach uh, changes waiting this long made sense trying to get the best evaluation of the roster that makes sense. Warren never came back, so you never got to see the team go together. But, like, this seems to me the right time to kind of rip the Band-Aid off, so to speak, and make that transition. I think that they can have a lot of success with that. Like I said, that's why I wanted to do this vlog this week. It's just kind of an amazing timing that they came out. But, like, at least from a very cold, like, video game fantasy sports perspective, so to speak, looking at where the roster is at right now, this seems to be the right time to do what they're going to do. So at least in that perspective, not literally the timing and the release of the news, but at least in general, the fact that they might try to very seriously make these moves right now, uh, I think it seems to make a lot of sense to me. Sure. I mean, I understand why they held on to people the way that they did over the summer, especially because we don't know what they were offered. I mean, right. Mark and I, Mark and I talked about that, that like they had guys injured. Like, and that's a piece of this too. People are like, well, they always get backed into a corner. They only moved Victor Oladipo until they had to. I'm like, okay, but he had a magical season in 17, 18, came back and had some little bit of a regression there for a few months, then missed 11 games came back and then his knee fell apart. Like at what point in time were they supposed to have proactively traded him? Like they didn't, they didn't have that opportunity and they did trade. I mean, I think that their timing, like what you're mentioning here was very good last year. I mean, we can quibble about what Levert's looked like here currently, but they also could have panicked after the bubble. They could have been like, Oh, you know, this isn't going well. And this is getting drama and a lot of stuff's being talked about. We just need to get off of him now, but they brought him back for a little bit, let him recoup his value and at least based on what Houston later got, I think that worked out pretty well for them. So it's kind of similar here. Like, you know, you did bring this core back. I mean, kind of in some ways, like you did out other pieces, but you've rolled the roster back. It's looked the way that it has. I don't think that they're in a terrible position. And like you said, to do it now, like the other benefit of this is that they don't have a lot of fans coming to the arena. So in terms of saying, Oh, well, the ticket sales are going to go down. Well, you're, you you do not have people coming <laughs> now. So like, yeah. like that was what was kind of funny in that report. Like, Oh, fans won't stay engaged. I'm like, well, the fans aren't yeah. really all that engaged right now. So the yeah. timing of it makes sense there as well. And I, I do think that, you know, yeah, you just I would be forward at the timing that you have. I would be shocked if that wasn't part of the thinking. I mean, these are obviously very smart people that are in the Indiana Pacers and they're like, if we've been waiting to do this because we don't want attendance to tank, well, attendance is tank. So <laughs> that is a non, that is not a variable anymore. Um, and so um, I, I am very confident that that is been at least some of the part of the thinking here, as well as the timing of the entire roster. Um, and yeah, getting Levert for Oladipo. I mean, it's where they ended up a trade of Victor Oladipo for, I mean, they couldn't even get a second in that deal, if I recall correctly, which is two, two expirings. Um, a small miracle there. Um, out of curiosity, based on where he's played, how he's played so far, there's the, the there's potential, there's health, and then there's results. I know you guys don't love fake trades, and that's not what I'm asking, but like, where do you think Levert's value is in general on the NBA trade market right now, and what kind of team would want to buy into him right now? Oh, wow. That is a good question. Um, I mean, I think not the, not the, if you have anything concrete, Caitlin, I, this is just me spitballing, but um, like my guess would be a team that 
is kind of lacking in shot creation right now. And they think that they can get the most out of Karras playing off the bench or something. Uh, and I don't know what the value is coming back, but I think like, um, and I would have to go through and look more closely at how the guy would actually impact, but like a team like Cleveland would actually make a lot of sense for Karras. Uh, I don't know what the return is on that. Um, but like if Cleveland says, Hey, you know, we actually are a lot better than we thought we could be this year. We've held through the toughest NBA schedule in, in the league. Um, Maybe we take a shot on Karras and see how that looks. Maybe Utah makes a move for him. I, I doubt it would be Utah, actually. But, like, you get the gist. Like, a team that is up there, needs shot creation, thinks that Karras can be that guy. Um, I think that that's definitely a possibility. Yeah, Utah's already got Clarkson. They've got their Levert dude yeah. <laughs> to, to, to do. Um, I have seen people who cover the Cavs mention uh, Karras Levert as an attractive possibility. And it's very interesting to me, like, is are people still viewing him as kind of, like, you know, what is it, Mini Durant? Or are they sort of viewing him as someone that just kind of is never going to get there? Um, I think that I think that opinions are at least going to be mixed. I'm very curious about how many people are still uh, kind of uh, uh, true believers in Levert. Um, what do you think, Alan? I just, and I hate to use Mark's least favorite word, but like, he can <laughs> oh, be you're somewhat. you're going to talk about fit, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> he can be somewhat tricky. I mean, because he is like what we've seen. He's a guy that when you watched him play in the bubble with the Nets, when you watched him toward the back end of last season, he can be in the flow and thrive when he really has space and freedom to operate and kind of play his herky-jerky game. But the problem with that is, is there's going to be games where he's going to look more like he did against the Wizards, and then there's going to be other games where he might be 5 of 18 from the field, and it becomes he needs to have like a star player role, but he can't consistently produce like a star. So are you, you know, I would see the fit being, and I don't know how amenable he would be to this, but a team that sees him as a sixth man where he's going to come in and, and, and for, you know, maybe a contender where he can come in and wreck benches because the underrated aspect of this is, is when he's not because of what his shot profile is and when he isn't making shots and because he hasn't been good shooting away from the ball, it's like, what is he really giving your team? What is he contributing to? And the passing with the Pacers here this year has made that even worse. Like I did think he looked better against the wizards. He got blitzed a couple of times and made the right pass, but if, if he's not making his little five foot pull-up shot, he's not getting to the line at a decent amount though. He has had a couple games here recently where he's done better at that. He's not going to get to the line a bunch and defensively there's just a lot of lapses that he has both on and away from the ball. Like he's good at anticipating and sniffing out the ball and getting steals, but he's not going to offer you a lot at that end of the floor either. So um, it makes it harder. I'll be interested to see what his market is. Like, you know, I think I saw some this morning that, you know, some people thought he might be able to be a fit to, to go to Phoenix if they wanted to make an upgrade and tinker around the edges. I mean, I don't know, maybe a team like Denver gets a little bit itchy with what their situation is. And they're like, you know, cause for them, like, even though they have all these injuries, they also have Jokic and who's on a timeline as an MVP and who's going to want to compete, even if it's not realistic for them to go all the way. They don't have a lot. They basically have nobody on their roster at this point who can get into the paint consistently and create and, and kick out, which Karis can do some of that. So, you know, maybe a team like that gets a little bit, you know, we're, we'll be willing to add somebody else to help us get through this spurt and then maybe they see later on that he could fit you know with Jamal Murray or off their bench I could see something like that maybe but I can't come up with a lot of ideas off the top yeah, of my head same, like even Dallas I think is a team that definitely yeah. needs secondary they need somebody who can Luka, do something then, off the bounce but then it's like well what is coming back that is of any right. real value to Indiana and I think that's where it's it's hard because I mean, like Caitlin mentioned, and we've talked about on prior pods, like Karis looks like a different player this year in some regards, especially with the passing. Um, it's been odd. Um, but, yeah, I agree. Like, I, I think ideally it's going to be a six-man somewhere for him. It, it feels a yeah. lot to me kind of like when uh, when when the Jazz moved Rodney Hood. Um, like, Rodney Hood was really good for them, just super injury-prone. He had that spurt where he played point guard for them for like 20 or 30 games. And then he got moved to the Cavs and played more as a six man. Like it's obviously it's different, but it feels similar to that where they're like, okay, yeah. it's just not happening with us. Um, so yeah, I, don't know. And I agree. I think that that makes sense. Um, maybe some teams that are kind of mid range young teams that are let's take a young asset that we don't think work is working out that great and throw it at someone that could be a little bit more bankable. And like there's a certain threshold of NBA scoring that you need to be able to consistently win uh, day in, day out. And maybe they see as Karis LeVert as being the last bit of spackle to get you to that point. Um, uh, but I think most part contender, and one thing that works in that sense is that 
any contender is going to be capped out. So the contender is not going to be that concerned about the the salary, even though Levert's salary isn't crazy. It's it's not great, um, but they'll be less concerned about that, and they will probably have some kind of contract that sort of sucks that they have to send back in order to make money work. And in that sense, it can be, work to the Pacers' advantage because their cap's so clean that they could take on a little bit of bad money, and that plus his potential plus his actual on-court ability could all roll up into enough value to get something a pretty much value back. And the downside of that is any contenders' picks are going to suck, and then it's just a matter of do they have anything that's actually of value. But like all of that, I, I would kind of see that um, as the best fit. And I've, I've said it before, but, you know, three cheers to the Pacers for having an extremely clean cap sheet. Other than Lavert, everybody on the team is a very tradable asset. I think that if, you know, if McConnell's hand was healthy, I think that you could get something solid. I think that lamb is expiring. That's the most utility that you get out of that. But like no part of this rebuild, I think is going to be by necessity taking on a bad con- or like unloading a bad contract or like getting rid of someone that's uh, half decently good just to get a four year maxed out contract right now. I think there's maybe a scenario where another franchise has Sabonis making 35 million a year. And then this is all way, way tougher to be able to do. So um, that is one really nice thing about uh, the Pacers in this particular situation is that there's usually like this one thing you got to exercise this one lump of coal you got to take before you start the rebuild uh, for a lot of teams that end up trying to do this. And a lot of times it makes them stop ever doing it. It's because they can't do something and they can't suffer the consequences of getting that off. Pacers don't have to worry about that. That is a very nice thing. And, and um, I don't think that that's maybe necessarily exactly what they had in mind when they got these contracts, but tip of the cap to making sure everything was a, um, a fairly solid deal to give them the versatility to do that without having to, you know, throw to a first round pick uh, to get rid of a star. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, I think that was a good place to leave off unless either of you two had anything else you want to hit on because I'm I sure actually do. Oh, yeah. I actually have sure. one question that I would like to ask. Um, are either of you at all surprised that Duarte isn't available? Ah, definitely. I am very surprised. Dave made this point actually on Twitter yesterday. Like he's a, you don't read player. my tweets, Kalen. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just teasing you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, mean, I would yeah. love to hear what like extrapolate because I was a little bit surprised by that. So yeah, if you I had tweets, say say your points. Shocked by that. Um, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll counter with you too uh, after I get this off. Like I, I was very surprised by that. Like I honestly think in some ways he might be the most intriguing. I hate saying asset, but like in some ways he might be the most intriguing asset on the Pacers roster. He's on a rookie steel scale deal. He's shown an ability to play at a pretty high level as a, as a secondary guy already. Like I think a lot of teams would be extremely interested in him. Um, And what makes it weird too, like I, I know it's different because age curves are different for every single person, but like he's a year younger than miles Turner. It's not like he's 19 years old. So I don't quite know what to make of this. Um, it is kind of interesting. Like I, especially too, as like how we've seen him and Kayla and I have talked about on the pod, like how he's been utilized with the bench and, and how he's running more bench lineups and, and doing as much as he's been asked to do on ball to varying degrees. Um, I do kind of find it interesting. Um, I don't really know what to, what that says. Um, yeah. Like I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, what did, what did you guys think of that? Well, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's, I put it out yesterday, yesterday, one of the best, assets they have to be able to and you know we're talking about specifically how to align the roster for the future and i know that i i also agree that kind of just saying assets all the time just uh makes me feel a little weird but you know in the particular context yeah. of this specific conversation um it's one of the best uh, uh, trade ships that they have i mean in the sense that i don't think that he is the kind of guy where there's the the sky is the limit and like this guy could be the all NBA dude that they have that ends up going. I think that no one really truly thinks that. And so you don't have the same sort of thing with a rookie that starts off really hot where you're like, are we going to just like hate ourselves for 50 years? If we trade this guy, I don't think that that's going to happen with the Chris Duarte, even though he's awesome. And I think he's going to have a great NBA career. He's, he is a, you know, a, a, a two-way wing that has a legit outside shot, has legit athleticism that is on a ridiculously cheap contract. Every contender, every good team 
is looking for a guy like this, but usually it's like 15 to $20 million. The fact that you could fit a guy like this onto a salary sheet for like, what is it, a little under $4 million, that really opens up a lot of possibilities uh, when it comes to trading. I mean, this is like a dream piece for any contender. I mean, we know that the Warriors, of course, and, and a thing that I don't think I've ever heard of before after the draft was still calling the Pacers like, are you really super duper sure you can't, you don't want to trade us uh, uh, Chris Duarte immediately? And, um, you know, when talking about all the young assets that the Warriors have, I think that rises to the top for me as something as an intriguing destination. You look at all the, the higher level, high ceiling young guys that they have. If you can get a pile of those and Duarte is a part of it, I think that you just kind of have to make that happen. Of course, the Pacers want to keep them. Of course, like, you know, but this is one thing that always frustrates with me when talking to anybody about any sort of negotiation, whether it's Facebook Marketplace or it's, you know, anything else. They'll say, well, Chris Duarte is super valuable. Like, well, yeah, I mean, that's the that's the point. I mean, that's the reason. Yeah, in order to get something very valuable, you have to give up something sort of, of very valuable. And um, I don't think that Duarte is a core piece of three, four guys that are young rookies that have that are going to lead a team to the top of the mountain right now i think he is more accurately an incredibly cheap from a contract perspective cost controlled guy that a contender would just like salivate over to be able to have i mean i think it's a little bit closer to um you know getting tj warren for 10 million dollars and having him be awesome than it is this is a rookie that could one day go to Canton um, and, you know, con, I got the wrong city, which was <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I didn't realize he played in the NFL. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, I am, I'm completely blanking on where the, where the basketball hall of fame is. I, I, I that's yeah. how little I care about the hall of fame. I actually don't know where it is. Um, wherever the heck it is. It should be in Indiana. That's what I think. Um, the, um, he doesn't have that sort of potential. So he's a little bit closer to a TJ Warren kind of uh, a situation that it is a, uh, like a cane kind of situation, I think. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Yeah, I think everything you just said, I agree with. And that's why it makes it a little bit hard for me to understand exactly what the current meaning of the word rebuild means. Because, you know, what Mark said at the beginning, like over the summer, you know, it was reported that they wanted a rookie who could help them win now. And that's, I think that's what Chris Duarte has been. And that in part was also, you know, Carlisle comes here, you're not hiring him to oversee a rebuild. You're paying him $7 million a year. So now it's coming out, well, they want to open up minutes for Duarte and Ajax. And it's like, okay, well, there's been lots of games where Duarte has played over 30 minutes a game. You could easily have him starting again. Like, I mean, he is starting again until Justin comes back and you could continue just to have him in the starting lineup if that's your goal. I'm not really sure why I understand why Ajax wouldn't be able to play without moving somebody given that over the summer they seemed very much like, oh, we actually see him as a four. Like there's minutes at the four right now. Who knows when TJ Warren's even coming back? So that, you know, it kind of comes across like what you're saying. Like, it's not like this team has a bunch of currently without making trades, like a a very young core to be, you know, excited and build around. So Duarte is only a year younger than miles. He is going to have value because of what his rookie scale deal is like. So then it does come across like, and I said this when I was on the podcast with Danny LaRue, like two weeks ago, that in a lot of regards, if you're just looking at this current version of the team and what you want to be Duarte makes more sense within you know, this Indian and a Maverick system than what Levert does in a lot of ways with the types of offense and sets that they want to run. Like having movement shooters is very valuable and having guys who can hit shots off of the action is very valuable. So he makes sense, but then it's like, okay, what, what, what direction are you actually choosing here? Cause like if yeah. you're retooling on the fly versus, you know, we want to get stuff in return so we can actually take steps forward. I was a little bit surprised that Duarte was just absolutely, I mean, that's the way it comes across in that article that he's just, he, that he's staying. Yeah. yeah. And exactly like going off of that, um, like Dave mentioned yesterday, I mean, I had multiple people who were asking me about golden state for Domas and, that's like immediately what, what I thought of too. Like, okay, well, if you're trading Domas to Golden State, you're getting back. Like, I mean, the idea is you're hopefully getting back like Moses Moody or Jonathan Kaminga. Um, and just being realistic, like I think Moody. So people the play. Pacers passed on to take Duarte. Exactly. Like, exactly. So like you're, you're A, that, and then B, also like Moses Moody's maybe closer to contributing at, 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 at a, in a winning way. Like, I don't want to say that either of them are not winning players, but like just point being like Jonathan Kaminga, 
is not a winning player in the NBA yet because he's still so far. Same thing with Moody. Like, they both have so far to come along. Um, like, if you're retooling, then how is that happening? Because those guys aren't going to be ready to contribute. Maybe won't be for two or three years. Uh, the end of their rookie scale deals where they're contributing at a level commensurate with being better than where the team is right now. So I don't know. Like, I think that's a really great point, Caitlin, because I feel like in some ways it, it, it limits your window of who it, who you're getting back in a trade that actually pushes you to a level that you deem is higher. And, you know, it, one, one important point that when you look at the Pacers history, the times when they've really done extremely well, a lot of times it's because they've made trades like this where, and you know, Antonio Davis is on the verge of being an all-star um, and Dale Davis as well, actually. Um, and, you know, I actually, it was Pat after his, but trading both those guys when they were still useful, uh, you know, for uh, Bender and Jermaine O'Neal, uh, one worked, one didn't. And they kept Reggie and they kept good players and they kept some of the core, but then they took a little bit of a step back and added a few guys. And so, I mean, this is a team that was in the finals and they made moves like this and they got back really fast. Uh, you know, they, they did what they said that they were going to do. I mean, they was uh, hopefully with Carlisle potentially winning a title in 2004 but that team got back to the playoffs real quick um and so that might serve as a model here where you know they made those moves but they kept reggie you know uh nobody on this team's reggie miller but you know he was getting older you know he wasn't you know peak reggie miller in that sense but um you know trading jalen rose with for brad miller and ron artest and uh, you know uh, trading mark jackson and then getting jalen rose in the first place and then getting them back and then these kind of moves where they say guys kind of at this stage of this career maybe a little bit later trading them to get someone else to come back up but keeping the rest of the team and not completely stripping it down they've done this successfully a few different times um the one time that it really did not work was after the brawl but and then after all of the things that happened after the brawl too but those were a little bit of a we have to do this kind of situation i don't think that they necessarily if they had a choice, would have picked Mike Dunleavy and Troy Murphy, but it was kind of at the point they felt that they had to do something like that. But other points of Pacers history, the not strip everybody down, but keep half the team, trade some of them for younger players and let them grow, then go back into it. They've done it a few times before. And so maybe that's what they're thinking when uh, when uh, doing this, is that Domas is their version of that. He's going to get the one young guy and then maybe a couple of other pieces and then let that grow up while the rest of the team plays well. Uh, uh, hopefully that young player is good enough to be good in a couple of years. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually sort of making that comparison a little bit real time. I hadn't thought about that as much yesterday. But this isn't crazy. I mean, they did this to a finals team. I, I don't know if I have anything else I can add, man. I, uh, there's, there's just so much that's kind of up in the air. We don't really know yet. No. Um, and – I don't know. Unless you guys have anything else to add, I think that's a good place to leave off. Nope, I'm good. Yeah, me too. Well, Caitlin, Dave, this was a blast. I appreciate you guys taking the time. I'm sure we will have much to talk about in coming days, weeks, months. Uh, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. You can follow Dave on Twitter at MillerTimePod. You can follow Caitlin at C2 underscore Cooper. You can not two Coopers. I just can't can't pronounce words today. You can follow me <laughs> on Twitter at M Schindler NBA. And, of course, read us over at Indie Corners. We will most definitely have a lot coming out in the coming days. Thank you for listening. Have a good rest of your day.